Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 84. Before we get to this week's episode, we have quite a bit of mojo updates. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, there seems to be some sort of phenomenon where once someone comes on the podcast, great things happen for them on the golf course. It is not made up. It is not a coincidence. The mojo is real. So congrats to Chris Ventura, guest on episode 81. That was just barely a month ago. He's now won twice on the Corn Ferry Tour in the month of July. He will be playing on the PGA Tour next season. Our friend Gene Elliott from episode 27, he is currently over at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's after successfully qualifying again for the Senior British Open. Scott Turner, episode 51, he is the director of the minor league golf tour that actually Chris Ventura played on. Brooks and Chase Kepka have played on this tour. It's based out of South Florida. He got his amateur status back. He won the Palm Beach County Amateur this past weekend. And finally, our friend Geronimo Steve from episode 61. He has qualified for the U.S. Amateur at Pinehurst, so congrats to Hero. And oh, by the way, a little bit of mojo for your host. Last weekend, I got a hole-in-one at Quail Ridge Country Club. So let's go ahead and celebrate that nonsense a little bit. So if you made a hole-in-one recently, go ahead and tag us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter Let me know where you made it. Let me know what club you used. And we'll go ahead and send out some back-of-the-range swag to you. We have towels. We have hats, tees, ball markers. We have all sorts of stuff. So let's uh, let's hear about your own one. We'll get some stuff out to you as quickly as possible. Don't forget, keep sharing the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our Instagram handle is the Back of the Range Podcast. Reviews are always appreciated in Apple Podcasts. Keep those coming. And again, the central hub of the podcast is thebackoftherange.com. So without this week's guest, I might not have had the chance to speak to great amateurs like Scott Harvey, Mike McCoy, and Matt Parziali. What do these players all have in common? Well, they are U.S. mid-amateur champions. And how does that tie back to this week's guest? Well, not only did he win the first U.S. mid-am in 1981, but he also helped organize the tournament with the USGA. He's a three-time Walker Cupper. He is a two-time U.S. captain in 2011 and 2013, and he made the cut in three of the five Masters that he played in. So let's get started. We're speaking today to one of the legends of amateur golf. I know he's going to hate hearing that, but Jim Holtgrieve from St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the back of the range, sir. How are you today? Ben, I'm doing just great. We finally got sun here in St. Louis, and so it's... uh... Got a chance to maybe get out and uh, hit some golf balls for a change. Well, there you go. Yeah, we're we're getting a lot of heat and a lot of sun down here in South Florida up in that, uh, I guess, 105 heat index range, which is perfect podcasting weather where you can be inside in, air, in the air conditioning. So uh, <laughs> it's, it works out pretty good for me. Um, you mentioned, you know, we're, we're talking about St. Louis. You, you spent so much time in, in the Midwest. Um how did I, I mean, there's so much to get to with, with your story and amateur career, but we got to start at the beginning. How did you get into playing golf? Well, Ben, I gotta be honest. My dad started me when I was four years old, um, at a place called sunset country club where ironically I won my first Missouri, uh, amateur title, but, um, it, uh, you know, my dad just got me started. My dad was an eight handicap. He loved playing the game and we were at sunset, uh, so I took a little lesson from Jim Fogarty. How do you take a lesson when you're four years old? I'm not sure I really understand that, but um, he got me hitting some golf balls, and we moved over to a club called Westboro Country Club because my father couldn't afford the assessment when their sunset was going to rebuild their clubhouse, so okay. we moved over to Westboro Country Club, and that's where I really grew up. It's only a golf course that's got 6,000 yards long, but it had six par threes, and uh, it really helped me become a really good iron player. And um, I had two really good teachers there, Tony Henschel and Phil Hewitt, and I had a lot of great members who, when I was a kid, they'd take me out to play. And so I just uh, I really got into it. And um, I played other sports, but 
when I went to high school, it became um, that there was no doubt that golf was what I needed to play. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure glad that um, I, I stuck with that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I look at your amateur career and your your achievements, a lot of them happened when you got into your 30s and 40s. So, <laughs> you know, it's not kind of like what you think about today with the with the world of amateur golf, where you have these, you know, 18 or 19 year old kids winning, you know, the son of Hannah and the players and the USAM. Um, you went to the University of Missouri and then did did you play there or, you know, explain to me what happened around the college time or when you got out of college? Well, uh, it's, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a good story. I get a little emotional about it because, um, it was, uh, some tough decisions in my life, but I went to Mizzou. I became a member of Sigma Chi fraternity and, um, I had a Saturday morning class, which was not good for a freshman. And <laughs> I was, had a golf scholarship and I belonged to a fraternity and I didn't really drink that much. I mean, I had a beer now and then, but I was not a really good student back in the day. I was a C student and I just really wanted to do sport. So, um, I, I just didn't do well at college and I basically flunked out of Mizzou. Um, I came back to St. Louis and I went to Merrimack junior college where I got a chance to play in the national, um, junior college championships down in Roswell, New Mexico, um, in 19, I guess that would have been 1969. No, it had to be sooner than that. I'm sorry. It had to be 68. So I, um, I did that, but, uh, my draft number was one Oh five and Vietnam was strong. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't want to go to Nam, uh, but I wasn't going to go to Canada either. So I went to my dad and I said, dad, uh, I'm going to enlist in the air force. I don't like I'm not, I'm not a Navy guy, so uh, I'm going to get in the Air Force. And if the Air Force sends me to Nam, I'll go. But chances are that, I, you know, if I go to Nam, I'll, I'll be in somewhat of a secure location. So when I've had the opportunity to be around a lot of uh, veterans, I basically call myself a coward because um, I, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to get into the patties of Vietnam because I didn't think I'd ever be able to play golf again. I'd either lose an arm or a leg or uh, I I'd never come back. So. But it was the greatest, to me, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, I spent four years in the Air Force, uh, so I served my country, which I'm honored uh, to have done. And um, I learned an awful lot. I learned about humility. I learned about respect. I learned about doing the right things, I, I, I believe. Yeah. And um, I got a chance to meet a lot of great people. And it was just, um, and the, the, the great story about it is that, that <laughs> I filled out the, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go after my training? And I said, well, I put down Germany one, cause I really wanted to go over to, to Germany. My family's from there. And, um, I thought that I could travel all over Europe playing golf. And I also wanted to see, uh, basically, uh, you know, yeah. what took place during world war two over there. So, um, but the government, as they do, they sent me to Hawaii. Now, why they'd send a golfer to Hawaii, I'm not sure. But uh, I got there, and I basically played golf every day. I met the three-star general who was in charge of Pacific Air Forces. I I won the club championship at Hickam Air Force Base, but I lost $25 to him. And <laughs> so I got a chance to play a lot. And that's where I basically had made a decision that I had won a big tournament. I won the Army Open, which was – a tournament for all amateurs and professionals in the, on the Hawaiian islands. And, uh, I won it. So I sent, uh, <laughs> I called my pro in St. Louis, Tony Henschel. And I said, Hey, I just want a big tournament. I want to turn pro. And this was 1971. Okay. I said, uh, so I want to come back. I want to turn pro. Can you get me some money? Well, uh, there's a guy, the gentleman who belonged to uh, Westboro was Jim Fox. He was the, the accountant for Stan Musial and Ben Kerner, who owned the St. Louis Hawks. And uh, so they went, and uh, Tony sent me a letter. He said, I got you 25000 from Musial. I got you 25000 from Kerner. But he said, you've never won a tournament here in St. Louis. You've won a junior tournament, but you've never really done anything. And um, I suggest you come back to St. Louis and prove yourself first. And so that's the second best decision I ever made in my okay. life because okay. I said, no, I came back and went to work for my dad. And, um, 
and kind of the rest is history. Yeah. Well, and you know, in 1971, you know, the, the, the winners on tour, they're only picking up like 30,000, 40,000 per an event. So it's not like it has, it's the big money grab that it is today uh, right. for, for kids that are turning pro and giving it a shot. And we'll, we'll kind of get to that topic a, a little bit later. So you decide to stay amateur, you come back after, after serving your country. And I guess what I want to ask you is, you could play around St. Louis. You played locally. You played. Then you started getting into the national uh, tournaments. Can you maybe speak to when or the importance of momentum or confidence in your game? When did it first starting to? When did it first start to attach in your mind that hey, I can really play? And then you, it kind of got you over the hump to be able to play on the national scene. Well, in 1977, um, there's a tournament here in St. Louis called the St. Louis St. Louis District. A golf tournament which is all the private clubs uh, and there was gentlemen there's so in st louis missouri we had a gentleman named jimmy jackson we had bob cochran and we had a gentleman called jim tom blair and these three gentlemen were were very very good players jim jackson did play in a walker cup team in 1953 and five i believe and uh they won several tournaments they played in several national tournaments and uh, they kind of took me underneath their wing, particularly Jimmy Jackson and, and taught me a lot. So in this tournament called the St. Louis district at Glen Echo country club in 77, I, uh, I won it. And um, it was a match play is 30. You qualify um, about a hundred some guys qualify for the low 32 spots and you play match play. And um, so I won it and I go, well, you know, pretty good that maybe that's good so the next uh, spring i uh, tried to qualify for the u.s open and i made it i made it through local and sectional qualifying and uh the, the open was at cherry hills 1978 and um i made the cut i shot 79 the first day which i was looking at the leaderboard after number 12 and um my, my name i teed off kind of early but but my name was kind of on the board. Right. I said, that can't be, I'm a steel salesman. <laughs> and so I bogeyed 13, 14, 15, 16, double bogeyed 17, bogeyed 18, shoot 79. I go, Oh, that's, but I came back the next day, shot 71 and made the cut. And I go, really, you made the cut in the U S open. And I beat, there was one gentleman that I wanted to beat. And that was Mr. Arnold Palmer. And uh, he shot 151 or two, I believe. And I go, really? You beat Arnold Palmer? So I came back to St. Louis. The next week was the, was the Missouri Amherst Championship at Sunset, 1978. And I won that. And I thought, well, now, you know, maybe you can play, but we got to take it to a, you know, even though the Open was a national level, I said, we got to take it to a national Amherst level. And I went and played in the Western and, uh, Played well and then qualified for the U.S. Amateur and um, at 79, I, I, you know, I made, I made the Walker Cup team after playing in some national events and doing well in, in the Amateur, and the kind of after that the rest was history because then you got invited to the Masters. Sure. And um, so, yeah, so you, it took you, off from there. Yeah, you were off to the races, and then what? What I just find so fascinating is that, excuse me, this run you're on is between the ages of 32 and 37. So, you're yeah. mentioning the the USAM, you're mentoring the Western, you're playing against a bunch of a bunch of kids at the time, aren't you? Well, you know what? I got to say this, uh, Ben, because um, not really. I okay. mean, yeah, we were, but back at back in that day, you know, it was Sigal, it was Bob Lewis, it was Marty West. It was Downing Gray. It was all those kind of older guys. The young guys, it's completely different okay. today. I'm glad you're bringing it's this up. It's all a so. bunch of young people today versus, you know, versus the, the mid-end. So right. it was nothing like my competition. I didn't worry about a, a new, an 18-year-old Jordan Spieth. I was worried about Jay Sigel and Marty West and those guys. Those were those were my competitors. Okay, so explain to me why is it because the the talent level at that age wasn't as strong as it is now, or is it because they were more focused on playing their their college and then skipping this and just going pro immediately? Can you maybe explain why? Well, 
I think both. I mean, I think that the fact that a lot of kids, I mean, you know, back when I made Walker Cup, and I probably, as I've said before, I probably shouldn't have made that 719 because O'Mara, Cook, and Clampett um, were obviously very, very good players. And But the NC2A championship was the same time as the Walker Cup. That's why they kind of like the USGA moved the Walker Cup from uh, May to September not to have that conflict anymore. Right. But those guys, those three guys um, said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to play for our college in the NC2A and they deferred on Walker cup. So I think that's the only reason I got in the 79 Walker cup. So were there some young players like those guys? Sure there were, but I don't think there was certainly the number like there is today. Okay. And I, I really think that the game today, the way these young these, these young men and women are being taught to play the game and the equipment that they have. Um, I don't, I'll probably get in trouble saying this. I, I, I think the game is somewhat easier to get to, to learn how to become a really good player. And one of the things that I was talking to a couple of teachers about, why are these kids so much better today than when I was there when I was a kid? And they all said because of the use of a, a, a video. Video really can teach somebody how to play a game. You see all the great teachers around the country. They're all using video to try to teach somebody how to play golf. Right. And um, so that wasn't around back, you know, in, in my day. And I, I really just, um, sure, there were some young players, but my guys, the one guys I worried about were the guys that I had known and who had been so successful around the country playing amateur golf. Regardless of how you got in, and how you get on that Walker Cup team? You you played on three consecutive Walker Cup teams, all winning teams. Um, gosh, the experience of going from you went from Muirfield in '79 to Cypress Point in '81, and then back across to uh, to Hoylake Royal Liverpool, where actually the Walker Cup is this year. So, uh, right. great great experience there. And then you got to be a captain in '11 and '13. We'll we'll get to that. Um, I guess the the other thing I want you know we always try and share little tips and tricks with the people listening and I I try to take something from my guests game and and let them impart it on people listening. Uh you were pretty well known for your long iron play, specifically your uh, use of the one iron. How did you get a one iron in your bag? I know it was more prevalent back in 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 maybe the 70s and 80s. Um that was more of a weapon and I, it's kind of coming back now. Everyone seems to have a driving iron. So when did yeah. you put a one iron in your bag and maybe what is something that helped you be successful with that club? Growing up at Westboro with six part threes, I, um, <clears throat> I was a, a good iron player. And I said, um, so in, in my, my wood play, um, back in the day, you know, back in the day, you wouldn't know Ben, but they had persimmon woods. Oh, I know, you know about persimmon yeah. woods and, and wound balls. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Okay, just want to make sure we were on the same page. Oh yeah, I know where you're at. But persimmon woods, I mean, I I could hit it, but I I said, you know, if you can hit this three iron and this two iron, why why can't you hit a one iron? So uh, my pro got me an a Ben Hogan Apex one iron, and um, I mean the rest was history because it had not been for the one iron. In fact, I was just talking the other day about playing and watching some of these guys play in the open and, and hitting irons off the tee and yeah. Back, I just remember back in the day that particularly at 78 at the U S open at Cherry Hills, that, um, I was just completely confident with hitting this one iron and it was, I wasn't worried about it on the tee at all. I knew I could hit it a long way. I knew I could hit it straight. And so I, I said, Let, let's play to you. Let's play to your, uh, your strength. It's, it's, it's a great story about, in, in 1981 at uh, Walker Cup, I always had a had the uh, last time I played with Mr. Palmer, which uh, about eight years before he passed, I always asked him what was the greatest golf shot he ever hit, and he told me about his his second shot on 13 with with uh, Mr. Jones and um, Cliff Roberts watching him watching him hit his second shot on the 13 during the 58 Masters after all the controversy at number 12. Yeah. Um, but he said the greatest shot he ever hit in his life was a three wood. He hit in there 15 feet and made Eagle. Well, people ask me, so what's the greatest shot you ever hit? Well, 
it, it wasn't a one iron, but it was a two iron that I hit during the Walker Cup on the 16th hole at Cypress Point, 247. I hit it two feet, and uh, we we you know I we tie the next hole and we win the one I win the w- winning point for the Walker Cup. But I was just my caddy said to me, I didn't like the layup, and he said, let's play to your strength. You're one of the best long iron players I've ever seen. So. I just had confidence and, and, you know, you know, in this game, when you got confidence in something, you, you play to it. And that's yeah. what all these guys do today. That's why I think, you know, you see how these guys play their irons or they play their drivers, whatever they, whatever they're most confident in. Uh, that's why they become so doggone good is because when they, they become confident and you know what that is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I knew that that was a strength in your bag. I knew that's something I wanted to kind of hit upon. Um, we're going to get back to Walker cup in a minute, but I wanted to talk about, you know, what's so fascinating is a lot of our listeners are, are mid amateurs or senior amateurs qualifying for the U S mid amateur is something that's, that's really a, a target for a lot of, a lot of guys. And, and especially even the women's mid amateur, um, we had Shannon Johnson, uh, on our podcast previously. She's the 2018 women's uh, mid amateur champion, but um, it's rare that you get to meet or speak to someone that's got their name on a trophy at the number one spot. You won the <laughs> inaugural U S mid amateur championship in 1981. And I guess let's just start. What were you, how did you find out they were going to even do this? Cause when I think about the USGA, I can't think that it just happens over a casual conversation. Hey, do you want to start a new championship? I'm thinking there's got to be committee upon committee. Um, how did the U.S. mid amateur start? Well, it's a it's a great story, and you talk about yes, you talk about all the committees that uh, get involved in these things, and I would tell you that this was this was a lot quicker. Okay. And, um, so in 1980, my first Masters, um, the Masters has an amateur dinner, and uh, Jay Sibley's there, Marty West is there. Uh, I don't, I think Bobby Lewis, uh, was there. Um, and we were sitting at dinner and I was sitting next to Jim Gables who was on the executive committee, of USGA. And it turned out that he was my captain in 81 for Walker cup. Okay. But we got, uh, we got talking and he said, Jim, we're, we're the USGA. We're thinking about trying to have a new championship for the working man, for the man that's got a family, it's got a job and can't get out and go travel around the country and do all these things that the young guys are doing at, at the Amherst. What do you think about it? And I said, Jim, I said, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, that would be wonderful. I mean, that's what I do. I work, I got a child. And, um, so it's hard for me to get to go, you know, try to compete against those guys trying to win the U S Amateur. And obviously I still want to have a chance to try to, play Walker cup or the world team. Um, so absolutely. He said, well, would you still play in the U S amateur? And I said, well, absolutely. Everybody wants to win the national championship. So yes, I will continue to try to play qualify for the U S amateur because I'd, I'd love to win that trophy as well. Sure. So with that, he, he's asked Sigal and Marty West and Louie, the yes and the same thing. And they all said the same. Absolutely. And that they would both, um, they would absolutely play in, in both championships and try to win both of them. So he took that. He said, well, you know, I'm going to take this back to the, to, uh, the, the other guys on the executive committee. This is really positive. He said, what about, do you think you could maybe try to help get involved and, and maybe get on the committee for this thing and maybe get us a golf course? And I said, <laughs> well, what about, what about Belle Reve? We had the 1965 open. I said, it would be a great, it's a great place in October. Um, and what do we try to do that? He said, well, go try to do that. Well, I went back and I'm not, a, I'm a member there now. I was not a member there then. Um, I talked to some of my, my golfing friends there and they said, yes, let's do that. Wow. And so within, um, you know, within a year. So, cause that was in April. So right. in 81 we did, so I guess it was a year and a half sure. that we were able to get the, the first medium scheduled at, uh, at Bell Reeve. And it was, it was kind of ironic for me 
um, because I was so concerned since I guess it, it, not that my name was on it because, but that I was involved in sure. it. So I wanted to make sure that all my friends, we had, I think we had 1500 entries and we had, uh, you know, 156 show up. It's now much bigger, but, um, so I was always concerned about making sure that those guys were taken care of and everybody was happy. So mm-hmm. I always was trying to, you know, make sure I'd talk to Siegel. Is everything okay? I talked to some other people. George Zanger got mad because we closed the range at six o'clock. He wanted to hit balls after <laughs> six o'clock at night. So he chewed me out a little bit, but, um, so I was always just kind of thinking about them versus my own competitive rounds and, and, and what so, so forth. So, um, and then when I got into the semifinals against Hausen, I go, you know, Hey, you got a chance to win your first, your first national championship. And, uh, so when I played Bob Lewis, it was just, uh, it was historic and, you know, I just, uh, it just, uh, it was really an emotional night when, uh, after I won, because, um, everything had gone so well. And I think the USGA was happy. Uh, obviously it was my first champion national championship and my only one. And, um, I think everybody had a great time. And I think we had just launched a, a really good championship that was going to help the working guys in this country. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of add to that, you know, you, you mentioned you had, you actually had 1,638 entries uh, in 81. Uh, just to kind of put that in perspective, there were over 4,700 in 2018. Right. And, you know, it's not like you're two-time Walker Cup captain trying to get a tournament off the ground. You're only 33 years old trying to put together a national championship at a club that you're not a member at. That just seems <laughs> completely out of the realm of possibilities. Uh, and, and that's that's incredible that that happened. Well, I really was, and I'm very thankful to the membership at Bell Reeve for supporting for what they did. Um, I mean, obviously, we had a little tournament here last year, and um, everybody from around the country told me what a great presentation that Bell Reeve did for the eight, for the 18 PGA. Yeah, and um, the members of Bell Reeve are committed to golf, and uh, they really did a great job for the 81 uh, Mid Amateur Championship for sure. I mean, we had a I don't know, but somebody told me there's a thousand people that came out to watch Bobby Lewis and I play in the final round, and um, it, it was pretty spectacular for sure. That's great. So you you got into so you've played the Masters five times. You made the cut uh, your first three uh, attempts at it. Um, how did you get in? You got into the Masters because of your involvement with the Walker Cup. It had nothing to do with the U.S. Mid Amateur Championship. Is that that's right? correct? Okay, so that's correct. Um, so I'm not familiar when the, the exemption into Augusta national started with the U S mid or I know you were on the committee. Do you remember the year that, that started? You know, I got it. That got to be honest. I do not. Okay. I don't have um, it off the top of my head either. Yeah. I, I should, I should have that. Uh, Cause I was really, you know, the, the Walker cup teams and the world Amateur teams got invited to the masters. Cause it was Bobby Jones yeah. dream to have as uh, Charlie Yates would tell us at the Amateur dinner and that's why they had the amateur dinner because it was Bobby Jones dream that a ma- that an amateur would win the masters. So, um, he was trying to get us fired up. Um, so that's why Bobby Jones said, let's have Walker cup and the world amateur teams come. And then obviously they had the semifinalists of the U S amateur. That's, you know, that's how I got in there one time too. Yeah. But, um, I got in basically because of the world and the Walker cup teams because of those, those five years that that's how I got in. So, um, and, and it's, it's, it's sad to me because Horde Harden is the one that took him, took that thing away. Uh, and I'm not sure what year, I think it was like, I want to say like 86, he took away or 85. He took away the fact that the uh, Walker cup teams were no longer world teams were going to no longer be invited to the masters. And, um, I, I remember I asked him why, oh, why would you do that? Mr. Harden. And he said, I said, that was Bobby Jones dream. And, um, he said, Jim, he said, we're worried about getting the top players in the world to come play in the masters. I said, Mr. Harden, you're going to be kidding me. Seriously. 
everybody's going to want to come play in the Masters. Everybody. So I, I, I just had a tough time with that one because I, I think that we now took away a chance for an amateur, you know, to go play in the Masters. And um, uh, I just, I, I was just disappointed that it happened that way. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of questions I have for you about Walker Cup and about amateur golf and, and I don't have them in a particular order. So I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of throw some of them at you. Um, you know, you were a captain, uh, you know, twice for the Walker Cup. You had players like Patrick Rogers and and Nathan Smith both years. You had Cantley and Spieth in 11. You had Homa and Justin Thomas in 13. And I guess one of the things with the Walker Cup right now, you're seeing a lot of these college players are, are foregoing their amateur status and turning pro immediately. Um, you know, whether you have like a Matt Wolf uh, from Oklahoma State who did that this year, you have a uh, uh, Bryson Nimmer has done it as well. You know, I'm sure you're a little biased, but I'm just, I'm real curious. Can you see any reason why an elite amateur should turn pro in the summer and, and miss the chance of, of making a Walker cup team? Ben, absolutely not. It's very, um, it's very upsetting to me that, um, that's what's going on, um, in this country with, these young people who think that going to turn pro is the thing that they need to do without having a chance to go represent their country. I've always said, you know, obviously I serve my country, but I always thought that one of the greatest honor in any sport is to represent your country. And um, if our young people were to learn more about what took place in Normandy beach during world war II, and learn more about Pearl Harbor, I, I think that they would um, maybe have a little different feeling. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I get worried about the fact that, uh, yes, I, I know Nathaniel, they had, you know, we have a practice session um, now. The USGA yeah. allows the captains to take 16 potential candidates to a practice session in the winter and tell these young men that they, hey, you're on the top of the list for Walker Cup. Um, you know, here's what, here's what you should try to do, play in these, these tournaments and, um, and try to make the team. Well, I, I guess they invited, uh, 16 and I think the top five guys from what I know, uh, said no. Now two of them had already, uh, I think three of them had already ser- had already represented their country, two of them in a Walker cup and one in a world. So the other two guys, I think Wolf and whatever, uh, said, no, they're going to turn pro. Well, when I went and spoke at a number of amateur tournaments, obviously trying to get guys fired up about Walker Cup, I always told them, I said, hey, if you're that good, if you are that good, you can play, you'll be able to turn pro right after Walker Cup. Right. But you should, if you've got a chance to represent your country, that that is your responsibility to do that. And uh, unfortunately, I think... Um, you know, everybody sees what the success that Jordan had and Justin and some of the young guys, obviously, Patrick Reed. Um, they see some of the success. I think some of these parents today are a little bit uh, a little bit in, in a different camp because it's all about the money. Um, so that that to me is sad. But um, so I get I get concerned about it, and I've I've actually tried to reach out to some of the other captains, some of the older captains, Vinny Giles and Downing Gray and uh, Dick Sitteroff and uh, Marty West, a few of the other guys, um, trying to say, hey, what uh, what are we going to do about this? And um, so I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting going forward as to what's what's going to happen with with one of the greatest. Uh, I mean, it was the first team competition ever. Yeah, uh, in golf, and um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Well, you know, you mentioned talking to the older captains. I know you got together with them at the uh, USGA annual meeting down in, down right here in Miami in uh, last year. Right. And, you know, there's that that great picture I think of you and Barucci and and Spider Miller and and you know Captain Crosby's going to be putting together this team this year. Um, you've been there. You've tried. You've put together two teams. You know, what are some of the things that that the captain has to do? before they get to the actual tournament? Like what are things that you're looking at when you're trying to figure out how you're putting your team together? 
Well, you know, Robbie Zalznick is my uh, team manager. He's he works. Uh, he's employed by the USGA. He's just been a great. He's a great man, and uh, he, he's just he. He reaches out to these kids uh, so well. I mean, it's just unbelievable how he um, motivates these young people. And so he and I get together and we talk about, uh, you know, the, the thing that we do in the practice session is to really educate and indoctrinate the players about uh, force and play. We, we just do not know how to play alternate shot. Right. An alternate shot is just it's, it's difficult on Americans because we don't do it. And they do it over in Europe uh, a lot. So that's the main focus that we do at the practice session. And then obviously Robbie and I, we watch that to see who we can put together, what makes sense. Do we put a good putter with a driver? What, what do we do? And so we do, I just analyze that. Obviously, uh, Ben, you know, we don't, <laughs> we don't talk to these kids about their swings or any of that. Oh, they, right. they know how to hit a golf ball. So, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated about uh, the talent that they have. Um, and so it's just a matter of trying to see who we put together and also just trying to tell, educate them about um, the history of the Walker Cup and what's important. And, um, you know, I played those three, those three years that you mentioned, um, and I was, a, I was a tough competitor. Um, and I'm not sure I really, I mean, I, I remember the experiences for sure, but I don't know that I really enjoyed the experience like I should have. And that's what I wanted to make sure that these gentlemen had a chance to really enjoy it. Um, enjoy this experience of being able to represent their country and meeting people from, uh, f from, from Europe. And yeah. so that was my main goal. Can you, I'm sure you can answer this question with several names, but can you think of one or two of the younger guys that you just did not need to motivate that just came in that were just, just, they were just completely on fire and ready to go that you maybe even had to, you know, calm down a little bit that they got it right away. Well, I've always said that Jordan Spieth was the most mature young man I ever met in my life. Um, when I met him when he was 16 years old and, um, there was no, uh, there's not one thing I had to do to motivate him at all. He okay. he was fired up from the very beginning. Um, Justin Thomas was that way for the 13 team. Uh, Patrick Rogers was, was that way, but more in a, not that Jordan and Justin were, were more excited, but Patrick just seemed to have a little bit of calmness to him I, on the 13 in, in 13 Walker cup, I said to Patrick, I said, Hey, if it, if it came down to the last hole, um, would you want the ball? Do you want to be the one to decide whether we win the Walker cup or not? And he said, absolutely. You put me last, which is what I did. It didn't come down to that, but, right. um, so I had conversations with guys like that to, to say, okay, what do you want? And, um, but I, I just felt that, uh, they're, the young guys, uh, you know, Cantlay, he was, Patrick was, there's no doubt that one was one of our finest players, but he was very quiet about it. Yeah. Um, Jordan was just, a, he was not, not outgoing, but you could just tell he had the confidence. You could see the confidence he had. And the 25 foot putty me on the 18th hole to have the match the first day was, <laughs> was unbelievable. Yeah. So, um, so it's those kind of conversations that I had with them. And, um, I, I think it, you know, I think it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a, as a mid amateur, I mean, as a, as a former mid amateur champion, I, I know you have a strong feeling about the mid amateurs role on the Walker cup team. You know, there've been different rule changes, whether we have to have one or we have to have two or, or maybe there aren't going to be any mid ams. I guess one thing that I'm curious about is, can you see a time where the captain of the Walker cup team is a mid-am maybe in their forties, someone that's still competitive on the national circuit that can relate more maybe to college kids and can get in their head about how important it is to, to stay an amateur and compete on that team. And, you know, obviously I'm thinking about, you know, the first name that comes to mind is Nathan Smith, you know, right. sim similar to what they do now with the Ryder cup and the president's cup where you know, Tiger's going to captain the president's cup this year, which, you know, he may be a playing captain and, you know, Stricker is going to be on the Ryder Cup cabinet. He's not too far removed. So, 
I mean, do you see a chance that we get more of a mid-am contingency either in the captaincy or on the team? Well, you know, Ben, here's a, here's, here's a story. So that, um, so, you know, so when in 2011, when Nathan Smith finished on the 18th hole at Royal Aberdeen, I walked up to him and I said, Hey, I haven't gotten a captaincy for 13 yet, but I think I'm going to be okay. So I'm going to see you, right? You're going to be there. He said, no, I'm done. I said, come on, Nathan, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, Jim, you know the deal. I, I, I've got a job. I'm married. Uh, I got responsibility. I can't keep keep up with these young people traveling all over the country playing these tournaments. I, I can't do it. Well, that really hit me the wrong way because what George Herbert Walker started back in 1918, obviously the very first official Walker Cup was 1922, but what he started in 1918 was to build, um, to bring two continents back together after World War One. And he went to the RNA back in the day and they said, you, they laughed at us. So you got to be kidding me. You want to have a competition between the United States and, and Great Britain and Ireland. We started golf over here. <laughs> so um, they, they laughed and said, it's not going to happen. Well, he kept, he kept going. And, you know, they had uh, in the, in the 1919 um, amateur, they had Bobby Jones and Switzer and a couple of guys had an off kind of offshoot little competition and the Americans won. And so the RNA said, bring it on. So um, George Herbert Walker said, perfect. We're going to have this competition because we're going to get our people to, to we'll use the game of golf to bring two continents back together. So when Nathan told me that, I said, that's not right. I went to uh, Tom O'Toole, obviously is, was president, well, he wasn't president then, but he was on the championship committee. Tom O'Toole, I, I think I'm the one that kind of started him in golf, and he caddied for me in my in my last two Masters. He caddied me for me in my Open. He caddied for me when I won the national champ, the Mid-Amer Championship. So I went to him and to Mike Davis, and I said, hey, George Herbert Walker, it's all about relationships. This is not, you know, everybody wants to win, but sure. this that's not the, that's not the, purpose of the Walker cup. Everybody wants to win. I understand that. I mean, I got into conversations with Shackleford and Maselli and all these crazy media people. I can, anyway, so, um, <laughs> talking about what really is important of the Walker cup. And, uh, so I said, gentlemen to Davis and O'Toole, I said, we got to do something about putting a mid am on the team. I mean, you know, one, at least one I'd like to, but let's, can we, can we do that? Well, they came back to me and said, be careful what you wish for, because we're going to give you two for the 13 team. I said, perfect. Well, and then you can't believe Ben, you can't believe the notes and emails and texts I got from a lot of like Kevin and a lot of guys from around the country that said, thank you. You've given us a chance to play in a Walker cup team. Yeah. And so they had a chance and obviously Nathan Smith and Todd white made it. They worked hard to get it. Uh, they beat out some great mid-ams. There's no doubt about it. And ironically, you know, Todd White won the 13th point and Nathan Smith won the 14th point. I mean, is it any more clear than that? Yeah. So um, so I'm all focused on trying to get a mid-am, at least get it for sure one, uh, two. I think the USGA, I've talked to Bodnheimer about this. Um, I think the USGA is going to put one, um, I hope. It's not about winning. I know that the the uh, GBNI team they're they're not going to put it because those mid ends you know they're turning pro they're they're gone yeah they're, they don't have any mid ends the the, the, the mid end championship they used to have out of there over there that's gone they, they, that that got canceled so I'm very very passionate about having a mid end on our Walker Cup team very passionate yeah and you know the other thing too is you you look at it's such a Look, this is the the Walker Cup. All these are it's all match play, and when you get to this level, whether you're a mid am or an amateur, whether you're GB and I or US, these matches can go any way. And you're looking at some of these these finishes where you see guys that you know. I'm I'm just looking at just like a 2011. You know, Stephen Brown beat Russell Henley one up. Now, right. uh, are you? I mean, how do you predict who's going to win something like that? You would think, of course, Russell Henley, a star at a University of Georgia, uh, but but you just don't know. So, what's to say that a mid-am can't contribute as much as a 
as a younger guy. I just, I don't know. I just look at that and I think to myself, I mean, the Sunday morning foursomes in 2011, you guys got, you know, other than Spieth and Rogers having a point, they completely, uh, they almost swept the entire side of guys like Uline and Barber and Cantley in English. So, right. Um, right. Did you see the connection between the mid-ams and your younger guys? Were they Did they kind of serve as almost maybe, uh, I don't want to say assistant captains, but more of, uh, uh, you know, did they re- did their leadership really help out in certain ways? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, Todd White is a teacher down in uh, South Carolina, and uh, so he could really relate. Nathan Smith, as you mentioned earlier, um, I, I submit to you, Nathan Smith is going to be one of the best Walker cup captains ever. He, you talk about a guy that gets, <laughs> gets involved with these younger guys. He was awesome. And, uh, he, he's just, he's just wonderful. I, I just love Nathan Smith and his time's coming yeah. and, uh, he, he will do a magnificent job because he really, he really relates to young people. There's no question about it. So, um, it'll be, it'll be really, I can't wait for him for that time to happen for him for sure. You know, I, I, I love team play, love amateur golf. So naturally that's why I kind of have my, um, my interest in the Walker cup, you know, right now, the selection process, you know, they have, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, captain Crosby is, can advise and recommend, but he's not on the selection committee and, you have three, you know, it'll be the three top Americans in the world amateur golf ranking as of early August. So those three will get an automatic. And then the person that's the number one player in the world after the U S amateur, that'll be the McCormick medal winner. That person will get an automatic. Then if the U S amateur champion is not one of those four people, they'll get an automatic. So there's a potential for five or six spots that are just going to be based on committee. And the captain doesn't necessarily get a pick there. If there was more guaranteed spots, would that possibly bring more attention and keep these college kids amateur longer, knowing that there are seven or eight maybe guaranteed spots? Would that have anything to do with it, you think? Well, you're going to, you've, you've thrown me a big curveball because this was a big catch 22. Okay. Um, because, um, and I, I probably don't want to get in too much trouble. Okay. We don't, yeah, we don't have to. No, no, okay. but no, but I, but I want to, I want to say it because it okay. needs to be said, it needs to be uh, brought up. But one of the things that, that Bobby Lewis and Marucci started to do back when they were captains is they started to go to amateur tournaments around the country to watch players play. And the USGA started allowing us to do that. They paid some of our expenses, a little bit of expenses, for us to go do that. And yes, we're not on the, uh, the, uh, ITS committee, international team selection committee. We reported to them and, um, they would listen to what we had to say. I took notes when I went to watch all these sunny Hannah's and the Northeast and the Westerns and the U S and watch these kids play. I would, I wrote down everything and I would report to the committee as to what I saw. One of the things that you have to be able to do, and, and I'm really passionate about it because of serving my country and all that, one of the things you need to be able to do is to represent your country, your family, your friends, and represent yourself. So to go have somebody go out and you know hit a bad shot and go crazy and have temper and throw clubs and curse and all that. Right. I don't care how good that player is. I don't care that player is number one in the, in the world. He, if he can't control himself, he does not belong on a Walker Cup team. So that's what I did. I went out to watch, and I think that's what Marucci and and, and Lewis and Yates and all of us have, have been doing. I think that's what Nathaniel's doing now. And so we report back. So now that they've changed a little bit, and now they've guaranteed some of these, I, I think they, you know, they got a we got to be, they have to be a little bit more, um, concentrated on, on how, how that person's going to act because, right. uh, that's the most important thing. And, um, you know, I had a, thank goodness. I had a couple of people, uh, that, uh, one guy turned, called me in June and said, uh, I got to turn pro, um, we need the money and, uh, I'm not going to be on the team and I, I'm not going to mention the name, but, yep. um, I'm glad he called me and said he was not going to, he's not going to be able to be on my Walker cup team. So, um, 
And that's one thing I get concerned about that there's automatic picks, um, which, which becomes part of the other catch 22 problem. Obviously the, the Ryder cup, they've got their points and they do it that way. Right. It makes it hard for these amateurs, particularly the mid amateurs. What tournaments are the most important tournaments exactly. for us to go play in? And how do we do it? Because there's not a point system. And so I've always said, you know, obviously the USGA events are the big ones. Uh, the Western, the Sunny Hannah is, is awesome. Um, John Yerger is just one of the best guys to run a tournament. The Northeast is really good. I mean, the, and the Porter Cup, those are the big ones when I was a captain. Um, the Southern, I mean, the Rice Planters, all those don't really get the, get the nod that some of these other, but it's all dependent upon the field. That's the key is how good is the field that's playing? Are those guys playing against the best players or are they just playing a couple of, uh, against a couple of uh, good players? So that becomes kind of the, the, the stalemate. And, and how do we really go forward with picking Walker Cup players? And it's something the USGA has got to work on. And I think uh, Bodenheimer, I think, uh, you know, he's been around it. So hopefully they'll put together a, a good system that, that can go forward and we can get the best team that's possible with the best guys possible. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, the thing that I, I kind of been listening to and picking up is I'd like to see, and I think you'd like to see it as well, um, amateur golf return a little bit to how it was when when you were at the national level in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, I I I think back to, um, you know, Stuart Hagestad. He was a guest on the podcast. He's, you know, the won the U.S. Mid-Am in 2016. And I just remember the big attention on him after making the cut at the Masters is everyone's asking him when he's going to turn pro and when he's going to do this and you got to turn right. pro. And it, it was almost like we, we can't revel in the achievement of what he just did. He wants to stay an amateur. Um and then we question his motivation. Like, well, why, why would you stay amateur? There's nothing for you to do there. And, and he has a great argument. He's like, no, I'd, I'd like to have a more rounded and, and substantial life. I just don't want to play golf all the time. How do we get more people in their 30s and 40s to compete and play tournaments and not just play golf on the weekend and knock it around with their buddies and say they're, you know, say they're a golfer? Well, and I got to be honest, when – when we put two on the team, um, everybody was excited. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Ben, I, I just hope that we can, um, I don't know. I, I hope common sense can come back to this thing. And I hope that we can get, uh, get our guys, our mid-am guys to, they got one chance that they can go play for their country. Can they go do that? I know some guys are still trying to do it. I know some guys are, are still trying to go and play in, um, in these tournaments and with the idea that they would make, you know, make a Walker cup team. And I, um, I, I, I know it would be hard. I mean, I, I can't imagine if, if I was, you know, Stuart and Scott Harvey's and Nathan Smith's age right now for me being able to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. I, I was so, so fortunate with the timing yeah. of my life to be able to, to be able to do it. There's no doubt. I would never have made a Walker cup team today. If I was Hagestad, I mean, those guys, I would have never made that. I would have never made a Walker cup team. Wow. Um, I just thought, I just thought of something, you know, Fred Ridley, chairman of Augusta national, he was, he played in that first, uh, us mid <laughs> that you won at Bell Reeve. I'm sure you know him. Do we ever see a day again where the U S Walker cup team gets a master's invite? Well, you are very intuitive. I, I really am wanting to try to get us captains to try to send a letter to Fred to honor Mr. Jones and to try to bring the Walker cup team back and let them play in the masters. I, I Fred played there, obviously sure. um, he played on Walker cup team. He knows it. I, I'm hoping that we have a shot at trying to do that. I know that I've got, uh, everybody feels the same that I've talked to. Um, and I, I intend to, 
I'm intending to go to the Walker Cup this year, and um, I, I think there's several of us going, and there's no doubt that, uh, that we're going to have a conversation about it for sure. For people that don't know a lot about the Walker Cup, and, you know, it's going to be – it's coming to South Florida in 2021. It's going to be at Seminole, which is going to be in, incredible. And then the next time it's in the United States, it's going to be um, it's going to be at Cypress Point, where you, you right. had your play in 81. Right. What is the uh, atmosphere of, of attending a Walker Cup for, for the average golf fan? I, I got to tell you, uh, we have – so in August, the first weekend – second weekend in August, we have what they call the Bobby Jones Invitational up at Highlands, North Carolina. Okay. And they've had this tournament for 30-plus years, and um, they bring back old Walker Cuppers. Okay to be the captains of a four-man team. It's a five-man team. We play a tournament, and they raise money for the hospital in Cashiers, North Carolina. And um, the old guys come back. I mean, we have, uh, God, we have Labor and Harris come come back. We have Downing Gray comes back. I mean, and I'm kind of getting involved in it because I've been going for the last – Oh, several years. And uh, Ann Bailey, who is a co-chair, and her husband, Tom Bailey, um, they are really passionate about it. And they came to the Walker Cup in 17 at L.A. Country Club. Yeah. And they could not believe the experience that they had. They just couldn't say enough about it. And they're, they're going to go to, uh, I think they're going to go to England to see the, the, the Walker Cup this year. Because they said, you get to walk right there behind the players. I mean, you, 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 are inside you know, the ropes, o- inside the ropes. Now over there, I will tell you when, when, when I played over there, uh, they, they, the, the fans were huge. I mean, there was 20, 25,000 people watching the Walker cup, you know, here in the United States, it's, it's a lot less. So that's why they let the people with no ro- no ropes. You can, you can walk down a fairway with these guys. So you really get a chance to really see firsthand how it's going, particularly here in the United States. Over there, it's a little tougher. I'll be anxious to see this year what it looks like and, and how many people there are and um, you know whether they'll be able to walk inside the ropes or, or there'll be ropes or whatever. But it, it's one of the greatest experiences. you got to go to the opening ceremony on Friday afternoon because to see the flag ceremony um, and then Saturday morning, um, to watch the play Saturday and Sunday, it's incredible because you're right there with them. It's right there. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap the episode up, but I got to ask you a fun one. You've played Augusta National. You've played. Um, you've played. You played Pine Valley, Cypress Point. Is there anything on your list, a golf trip, or anything on your list that you want to still do? Any place you want to still play? Well, we're all degenerate golfers. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Walker Cup captain, but I'm a degenerate just like you. Where do you want to go play? What's next? Well, you know where I've never been. I've never been to Ireland. Really? And I want I want to go to Ireland. I've never been there. I've been to Scotland, but I've never been to Ireland. And I'm trying to get my boys. We're going to try to we were going to try to go this year. Um, so we're going to try to do it next year because I'll be 72. And if you can't go walk and play Ireland, then you you know you haven't experienced golf as far as I'm concerned. So 100%. I've got to get to Ireland, Jim. This has been just a real treat. Uh, it's been spectacular getting your your insight on amateur golf and and kind of reliving some of the history of the Walker Cup and and the Masters. And just I think the one thing that really shines through with this episode is how much you love your country, and um, and and that's fantastic just to to hear you sharing all these stories. So. I wish you the best. Go to Ireland as soon as possible, and uh, hopefully we can uh, hopefully we can do this again uh, again sometime soon. And hopefully I'll see you at the Walker Cup this year. Well, Ben, uh, let me just say thank you for what you do because uh, obviously you love the game and you're promoting the game, and we need more people like you to to do this. So thank you for what you do, and uh, I, I've certainly enjoyed this uh, very very much. What an episode. What a conversation. Thanks so much to Jim Holtgrieve for joining us this week here at the back of the range. Really appreciate his uh, his candor, his transparency, and a lot of the great stories that he shared. 
We will be back next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range. Make sure that you're following us on Instagram at the Back of the Range podcast. All of our previous episodes are available at the website, thebackoftherange.com. So thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again next week here at the Back of the Range.